What is software architecture? Hi, my name is Eric Normand, and I help people thrive with functional programming. So this is an important question. It's an important term. We, we use it a lot. And I want to have my try at, at defining it. Someone uh, I, that I respect, uh, Avdi Grimm, tweeted the question, what is your definition of software architecture? And he asked it in a way that made it seem like there wasn't one definition. I don't think there is one accepted, you know, widely accepted consensus definition of software architecture. Uh, and he didn't either. So it feels, it seems like there must be some kind of, you know, we can have some freedom in how we define it. Um, and I'm not an expert on software architecture, uh, but I have some thoughts on it. And I think I have a, a definition that might shed some light on it that is like a useful definition. It's a, it's a practical definition uh, as opposed to a more philosophical definition. So these are my ideas on it and uh, feel free to, um, to accept them or not. Uh, I'd love to get in a discussion about them. So let's, let's get to it. So what is software architecture? Um, so when we're writing software, there are certain decisions we have to make that every decision has a cost, right? A cost to change. So we might make a decision like we're going to use this particular database. And then once we, you know, three years down the road, we have all this data in it. Now it's very expensive to change database. So we have code that's written just for that database. It's expensive. And then we have some, uh, some decisions that we make that are very cheap to make or to cheap to change. So we have this function, we wrote it three years ago, but now we look at it and we say, oh, I need to make it do something different. We just go in and we change the function, right? Very cheap. Um, so architecture is all of the stuff that is expensive to change. So there's going to be a J curve, right? If you plot out um, the, the expense of changing your mind, changing the decision, and you put all the, you know, you sort them by the most expensive to the least expensive. So the most expensive ones, there's going to be some curve where they're just like super expensive to change. And, and then most of them are this long tail of really cheap changes, right? So architecture, you draw the line somewhere in that elbow of that curve and you say, okay, everything on this side is architecture and everything else is design. Okay. So that's, that's the simple distinction there. It's just the cost of change. Uh, before I go further, I do want to say that I like to pick apart, uh, the, the usages of words and we should really be careful with trying to fit multiple definite or one definition to multiple usages of the same word. And I think with architecture, we have this problem of having different usages and then 
we get confused because they're the same word, but in, in different different ways that we use them, and they should really have different definitions. So the two usages that we should distinguish here are saying architect software architecture in general, right? So what is software architecture? Uh, I'm doing architecture. These are architectural decisions. That's one usage. And then another is when we say, what is, this is an architecture, or we are using this architecture. So we're going to use the MVC architecture, right? So this is two different usages. This corresponds to something like in real architecture with buildings. You can say, what is architecture? Oh, it's the use of structure to define spaces. You know, I don't know what the actual definition is, but it's some general thing that's trying to just leave the door open for whatever you need to be able to do. Um, but then there are particular architectures. So you could say this is Roman architecture, right? And there's some, some fixed things in that architecture like okay it's they use stone and they use arches and they have a certain kind of you know there's certain technologies that they had for how uh, you know the mortar that they used between the bricks and how they cut the stone and etc that's Roman architecture but then you could have modern architecture which has a lot of that is trying to to use really straight lines and clean, uh, clean looks and things like that. So there's there's different architectures, but then there's architecture in general, and we have the same thing. So I'm defining right now this high cost of change is software architecture in general, and we'll define an architecture afterward. Okay, so those two things are separate. Okay, so we were talking about this. J curve and this you draw a line somewhere and you say these choices that we make are expensive to change later so we have to get them right because we're probably not going to have the resources or the time to change them later uh, and so what you basically wind up doing is choosing these fixed points you consider them fixed points you're like we're never going to change it so it's a double-edged sword we're committed to it so whatever drawbacks it has we're committed to those but we can also rely on them right we're just going to assume that they're there that they won't change and so this lets you move a little more more you know confidently these things are here uh, we can rely on them um, so uh, some examples of those fixed points you know usually what's expensive to change is uh, your database your programming language um, maybe you are building for the web and so that has that's an architectural consideration. Uh, you, so the platform you're you're going to run on, like is it mobile? Is it web? Those kinds of things. Now I say that they're choices, <laughs> um, and sometimes it seems like you have no choice. Well, we have to be on mobile, 
right? Or we have to be on the web. But you could imagine someone making the wrong choice, right? Saying, well, we have to be on mobile, but that was the wrong choice. So it's still a choice, um, even though it might be obvious what you should do. Uh, the other thing to consider is a lot of these things look like infrastructure. Um, and they often are. Infrastructure uh, choices are often expensive to change. But it's, that doesn't mean that infrastructure equals architecture. Okay, that's just a coincidence that, some t that so often the infrastructural choices are expensive to change later. Okay, because you could, you could in, in theory, uh, to have some like very software-oriented uh, choices, so like code, that's hard to change later. An example is MVC. So you, this MVC is just a design pattern. It's, it's just some code. It's just how you organize the code and how it's uh, what the roles and responsibilities of different parts of the code are. It's not really infrastructure, uh, but it's expensive to change. Once you've baked in that assumption that you're using MVC, say in your web app, that's, that's going to be hard to change later. Okay. Um, another thing is sometimes you, you choose, well, so, so architecture is all about choosing these fixed points that, like I said, this double edged, they have, um, they make it harder to change later, but you can rely on them. Okay. So you're making these, these choices of fixed points and they're all trade-offs, right? So each fixed point that you choose has some benefits and it has some costs, right? Um, what's important in this discussion, because the benefits could be like, there's a lot of programmers who know that programming language, right? So it's easy to hire. Um, and the cost could be something like, well, the license costs $10 million a year for that database, right? So there could be those kinds of costs, but in terms of architecture, really there are some, what you're looking at as the decisions, the, the, the benefits and the cost of those decisions are about increasing or decreasing options, right? So if you're making an architectural decision, it usually, by being a, a kind of a stake in the ground, it opens up possibilities for things being cheaper to change or maybe they make other things hard to change. So, for example, um, part of the marketing for Java is that it is right once run everywhere, okay? Now, everywhere is probably an exaggeration, but uh, it is a highly portable language, right? It's, it works on a lot of different platforms. So by saying, by making the architectural choice, we are going to be on the JVM. That allows for it to be easier to move to different platforms. So notice it's, it's decreasing the cost of 
of another architectural choice. What would have been an architectural choice with some languages, like, you know, if you were on, let's say C sharp in the, in the late nineties, it would be hard to run that on Linux. Now it's easy because there's mono and stuff. But back then it was hard. So you were, by saying C-sharp, you were also committed to Windows. Okay? But now um, you can do C-sharp and move to Linux. And so you have this platform change. You know, you can change platforms. So it, it opens, that kind of choice opens up other possibilities for cheaper changes later. Okay? Now, sometimes, well, Java is my example. But what your job as an architect is, if you're doing architecture, is to choose, to strategically choose these fixed points to optimize for the requirements that you have in your software. So the requirements are often um, something like it has to run on the web because our customers can't install software on their desktops, but they have a browser and internet, and so we have to deliver this over the web. Okay, so you're getting a benefit, which is you can reach the customers, but it has a cost. Being on the web is, you know, full of, you know, known costs, like you now have this client-server model, it's got asynchrony, you have browser uh, incompatibility, stuff like that. Uh, you're, it's also going to limit you. You got to deliver HTML. Like that's just the way the web works. Um, so there it's, it's having all these constraints. It decreases the options in some areas, but it gives you access to the customers. Also probably, uh, you could say it increases the options for what, uh, backend you use, the frameworks, what your server is running on, um, things like that. So you, you notice there's kind of this this matrix of different options that and this landscape that you're choosing places on and whenever you have a landscape it it's good to think of it as optimization right you you're putting stakes in the ground each stake changes the landscape and so you're looking for a set of these fixed points that can target a certain requirement or a certain set of requirements. Okay, that's very abstract. Uh, but um, I hope the, the web example makes it clear. So you could say, well, we're going to target um, the JVM because we want to be able to run on a variety of commodity hardware. And there's a lot of existing infrastructure, existing software for running JVMs and managing them. Okay, so that's another art. So you're on the web, you're running the server and the JVM, and then you also say we're, we're going to um, use React, right? So that's another stake in the ground, and that opens up a whole other set of options along with a set of costs and, and constraints, right? Uh, so just look at it like this complex web of, of landscapes that as you choose different spots, fixed points, it changes the way that all the other ones interact. Really complicated.
And so um, sometimes you hear people uh, choosing particular sets of these fixed points. And I, I often wonder, like, what were the requirements that led you to that? And often it seems like people are choosing them for secondary or tertiary reasons. So just as an example, I worked at a company that did uh, microservices and um, I wasn't aware at the time when I started, but I started to, as I, as I um, worked at the company longer and longer, I started to think that the reasons we chose microservice architecture, like the ability to deploy the pieces independently, um, the ability to scale uh, horizontally very easily, uh, the, the, the isolation of failures, things like that. Those things were not actually requirements for our particular piece of software. It the software we were running did not require those things and it made a whole bunch of stuff harder um, like the ability to share code the ability to um, iterate quickly on on a particular feature because every feature required um, modifying the repository for multiple services um and so anyway i i just feel like this is this this is a useful schema for how to think about architecture because if i look back i wasn't there when they decided to use microservices but if you just kind of ranked all of the requirements in in order uh, what's the most important requirement and there's going to be some that are kind of unknown right that are like uh, they, they, these could really change uh, and these are like nice to haves but they're secondary uh, if you had just rank ordered them then it would the the architectures the architectural choices that we could have made would be much clearer and more correct um, and anyway so that's that's my experience with that now I want to talk about unarchitecture so when you talk about a particular architecture because there are some uh, architectures that that we know of right that we see in use for instance, an event source architecture, something like that, or an MVC architecture, or uh, you could look at something like a LAMP stack as an architecture, right? Um, these, uh, these are all sets of architectural choices that define the large-scale schema of how the app the software is going to operate okay uh, they have to you can't just have any set of architectural choices there has to be enough there to to show how the app will work 
right? So in an MVC architecture, because like let's say uh, Rails, something like that, that is providing the end-to-end -end flow of how this application is going to work, right? So it's not simply like like you couldn't say uh, Java with uh, servlets is an architecture. It's not enough. It doesn't tell you how things work, right? But once you start getting into MVC, uh, it starts to take some shape. Okay, it's going to be database backed, and uh, the routes are going to point to certain operations that store stuff in the database or take stuff out of the database, and you can start to see where the pieces of the software that you write fit into it. Okay, but in this sense, I think that it's wrong to call microservices an architecture. In general, you can have a particular architecture that makes the choice to use microservices, but microservices itself in general, without more constraints, without more structure, is not an architecture. So just saying, we're going to break it up into small services is n does not tell you how your app is going to work. An example of an architecture that does that uses microservices but that also tells you how the app is going to work is something I saw in a Fred George talk um, where it was all about insurance quotes and one of the requirements was that they wanted it to be kind of like a marketplace for insurance quotes. So someone types in their information, the user types in their information, and they submit the form, and then they're supposed to receive a bunch of quotes. Like, oh, if you go with this company, you'll get on this plan, you'll, this will be your premium, and you'll get covered in this way, and you'll pay this much every month for this plan, etc. right? And so the idea was you submit the form and you get a whole bunch of quotes and the requirements are we don't know what those algorithms for determining the quotes should be yet we don't know all of the companies that we'll partner with yet uh, and we need to show the quotes even if one of them fails right so if like we can't find if we can't calculate the quote in time, we need to show the rest of them that did come through, right? So there's all these requirements. And so they broke it up into microservices, but the architecture included the, the, the structure of how the app should work. So when a user submits the form, that is put into a, a queue, a stream that different microservices can subscribe to so they all all the microservices can get that message that the user submitted their thing and process it in their way each microservices each microservice define a different architecture or sorry a different algorithm and then when it chose the quote it would put that onto another queue with an id to tie it back and so after you know one second, two seconds, whatever, of waiting, the server would then gather all the ones that are ready on the queue, all the quotes, put them together into a response 
for the user. Okay, so notice how it gives a much more detailed story about how the, the flow of the app is going to work, right? How, the, how everything should be structured. It tells you where to put things, right? Oh, you have a new algorithm for, um, for choosing, a, for quoting a, an insurance policy? Make a new microservice. And it has to do this. It has to grab, it has to subscribe here and put answers there, right? Um, so it's not just microservices as an architecture. Microservices is more like a small architectural decision. But they use the, the microservices to great advantage because you could deploy separately. You could add new ones at a later time, new services because of the way the, the architecture was designed. Okay, so that's uh, just about all I have to say about uh, software architecture. I'd love to hear what you have to say, uh, whether you agree, whether you have some reference for a better definition than this. Uh, it's something that I'm working on for my book um, not not particularly a, a definition, but I am dealing with a couple of different architectures, right? In the second sense, uh, where the whole flow of the app is is defined with these architectural decisions, and uh, so um, it's good to it's good to like know what other people have have how they have defined architecture. Uh, the two architectures that I'm going to be doing soon are uh, the Onion architecture and the uh, and a reactive architecture for a front-end app. Um, yeah, so if you like this episode, you can subscribe at lispcast.com slash podcast. You'll find uh, text, audio, and video versions of all of the uh, existing previous episodes. Uh, please tell your friends if you liked it because uh, chances are they will like it too and it will help me out, help spread the word, get more subscribers, and have a wider reach. Uh, also, please get in touch with me because I love having discussions. My name is Eric Normand. This has been my thought on functional programming. Thank you very much for listening and rock on.